Good morning. I'm excited to be at Schindler Drive this morning. I feel like I have so many connections to this church, but have never had the opportunity to be here. Uh, so it, it's great to be with y'all. Uh, first order I wanted to, to bring up this morning is uh, there's a family that serves with us in Togo, uh, James and Jenna Roberts. You guys know them. You serve them. I want to let you guys know that they landed in Togo yesterday, and they are there, and they are on the ground. So praise the Lord for that, everybody. Uh, man, like it's possible because of missional churches like you guys. And so, and I just wanted to thank you so much for what you've done uh, to get them there and know that the gospel is going to people who've never heard it because of your faithfulness. So thank you so much. We also have a mutual connection in Brody Holloway. Uh, yeah, just laugh. That's all you can do, right? Just like, yeah. Uh, Brody, actually, we met in Texas in 20. 16, 2015, something like that. I, I had just became a Christian. And uh, he was coming out to meet some donors. And at the time, I was guiding hunts on uh, some hunting reservations uh, there in Texas. And so I said, yeah, you guys come down. I can probably get us to stay the night at one of these ranches. And so anytime Brody Holloway has a chance to see big deer, he'll go. And so we met, we met there, and the power went out that night. Big hailstorm came through, knocked out the power. And so we sat on the couch, and I just shared my story with him about how the Lord had saved me. And he was like, stop. I need you to come to Snowbird and say that at a men's conference this spring. It didn't work out. I ended up going the following year. But I came that spring, and then he invited me back that fall. And then uh, after the second time, he's like, I think you should just move here. Like, that, that, would, be, that would be good. And so I said yes, which... <laughs> Um, but it was great. Brody's the one who allowed me the opportunity to be in ministry, and the reason I'm here uh, today is because uh, guys like him took a chance on me, and so I'm, I'm super thankful for that. We've had the opportunity to do ministry together in North Carolina, and we actually went to Togo together. The way I got connected to Co Togo was uh, with Brody, and then we also uh, did, some, did some work uh, in India as well, and so have you, if you guys have ever been, anyone been to India before? few people yeah all right so there's this thing in india called deli belly right you get there you get sick it's just the way it works i don't know and but we were doing uh, we were doing ministries to some muslim background believers and there was this one young guy uh little bitty guy like 95 pounds soaking wet indian kid and uh i say kid he's probably in his early 20s and uh his name was mo and so like Mo wanted to be baptized. He had never been baptized. And so everybody's trying to figure out, like, how are we going to make this work? We're in an area that's super hostile to the gospel. You just can't go down to the river and baptize people. That would be bad news. But on top of the houses out there, like, they have these big black cisterns that they collect their water in. It kind of heats the water, dual-purpose thing. And, but Brody's bright idea was, well, let's just take him up on the roof, and I'll baptize him in one of those big water cisterns up there. And so they get up there, and they realize it's so tall, like he can't get in because it's too deep, and he can't really <laughs> baptize. So Brody's like, it's cool, man. Like, I'll just come up there, and I'll just kind of hang you over the edge, and I'll dunk you. <laughs> I'll dunk you in it. So Brody takes this 95-pound Indian guy and is, like, dunking him like a tea bag in the cistern. So if you want to know how you get deli belly, it's because people like Brody Holloway are dumping little Indian kids in your drinking water. And that's how you get it. But I love that ministry. I love Snowbird. Um, me and my family, we served there for, for three years. And it was three wonderful, wonderful years before the Lord called us somewhere else. 
And so, uh, but this morning, if you guys will turn uh, with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to be in verses 1 through 6, talking about unity in the body of Christ. So the way Ephesians is broken up, it's six chapters long. The first three are talking about theology, and then the last three are talking about practice. So Paul tells us this is the way we should think about God, and then the last three, he says this is how we should respond to God. So beginning in chapter 4, this is that initial phase of response. We begin to walk it out, we begin to practice it. Uh, this is so important. I grew up in I grew up in Northwest Alabama, and so I grew up as a cultural Christian, right? Probably not really deep roots. Mom and dad were Christians. Family was Christian, so I was a Christian. Not a not a ton of discipleship, intentional discipleship happened, and we we definitely didn't learn how to apply the deep truths of Scripture. This is no fault of uh, the church at the time. People can't give what they don't know how to give, right? And so uh, that's just the reality of where we are. So uh, I love Schindler because I believe Schindler takes discipleship seriously. Um, but so I went to Iraq when I was, you know, I was 20 years old when I got there. And I began to see and experience things that I didn't have a theological category for. I believed in God. I knew stories about God. I knew stories about Jesus, but I didn't know how they really applied to my life. And so at one point, we were going after the most wanted guy in Iraq at the time. And we kind of got him cornered. We knew about where he was, and we, we knew he was staying in one of two houses. The houses were pretty close to one another. And so because we knew he, we had him narrowed down to one of those two, we thought he was in the first one, he could, but he could be in the second one. And so the decision was made that we would just strike both the houses to be sure that we got it. And so that's what we did. We made the call and struck both of those houses. If, if you learn about Middle Eastern culture, when a man of influence comes into the home, what happens is the women and children are moved out of that home and they're put in a separate location as a, a sign of respect and honor. And so the first house we struck had him, his leadership team, and the guys that we were after, but the second stri- house that we struck had all the women and the children in it. And so while a lot of us were elated that we had taken out the most wanted guy in Iraq, uh, all I could focus on was the line of women and little girls on the side of this canal that had just lost their lives because we were trying to get this one guy. And so I remember taking this three-year-old little Iraqi girl, putting her in a body bag, zipping her up, and then just going, I, I don't know what to do with this. If, if God's all-powerful, he, he would have wanted to stop something like that. If he's all, all good... He doesn't desire things like that. So if he could have done it and he didn't do it, if he wanted to do it but he didn't, is he not all powerful or is he not all good? And I, mean, I just didn't have answers for those questions. I didn't know what to do with it. And so about a, about a month later, um, I was wounded. And through that, uh, I gained access to pain medication and I went home and then I had access to alcohol and not having a way to cope with those hard questions of life led to 10 years of addiction that followed it. And it was the only way that I knew how to manage. And so what I had done is I had taken the God of the universe and replaced it with a God of substances and little things that I thought would appease me. So it's important that we learn how to move from theology into practice. Because though I had heard of God, I didn't know how to walk with God. 
I didn't know how to live that out. And so that's what Paul is teaching us to do here. But specifically this morning, unity in the body of Christ. And so our goal is we want to give you a picture of how Scripture describes a healthy biblical church. There are three ways that we maintain unity in the church. I've broken it down this way. By character, by choice, and by conviction. By character, by choice, and conviction. I was in Denver with some friends of ours, our teammates, last week, and they were like, hey, what are you going to preach on Schindler Drive? And I was talking about oh, unity in the body, and it's going to be about you know uh, character and choice and conviction. And, and one was like, oh, do you always alliterate? And I was like, no, I know how to read. And <laughs> it's like, no, not illiterate, alliterate. I was like, oh, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. I was like, man, I've had a lot of head injuries in my life, and so I need things that rhyme to keep me on track. She's like, those don't rhyme. I'm like, I've had a lot of head injuries in my life. <laughs> All right, beginning in Ephesians uh, 4, 1 through 6, let us, let us pray before we begin. Father, we love you. Thankful for the time that we have as a body to be united, to sit under your word. Pray that your Holy Spirit would speak through me, that your Holy Spirit would fill this room and in this place, knowing uh, that every time your word is taught, that we make a decision even to either to soften our hearts to the word that's being preached or to harden our hearts and uh, rebel and reject your gospel. I pray that this morning hearts are softened, ears are open, we hear the truth of your gospel, and we submit underneath of it. We give you praise and ask that you would be with us in this time. In the name of Jesus and for his glory, amen. All right, Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who's over all and through all and in all. So the first point that we come to is the character of unity. Verse 1, Paul says, I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And so our salvation isn't just for salvation alone. He says you have a calling on your life. You have a purpose. You have a mission. If our salvation was just for salvation, then the best thing that Jonathan could do for you guys at baptism is just to hold you down until you stop wiggling. All right? But we, it's not our call, right? Our call is we have a mission, we have a purpose, and the church has a mission, and the church has a purpose. And he's saying, walk in a manner worthy of that calling. But he also says something else in this. He says, as a prisoner. Why does, why does Paul feel the need to identify himself as a prisoner? I think, one, he's saying that the gospel is worthy of sacrificing for but at the same time, I don't know what you guys during COVID did, but I doubt you were checking in online to the First Baptist Church of Cell Block D, right? Like, nobody was watching what was going on in the prisons. By all accounts, Paul should be out of the game here. He shouldn't be involved in ministry. He's locked up. It's a little bit shameful. It's a little bit scandalous. I'm sure he lost some reputation with people because of his imprisonment. So why is Paul identifying himself as a prisoner to the, to the church as an example? Because he's saying your circumstances don't change your calling. Your location doesn't change your calling. Yeah, Paul's circumstances changed, but it didn't change the calling that God had put on his life. His call was the same, and that was to be a minister of the gospel and kingdom advancement. 
And so he continues to press on. He continues to write letters. He evangelizes the guards and the other prisoners that are in prison with him. Paul stays on mission because he understands his circumstances don't change his calling. And so he leans into that. I think it's a powerful message for the church today because there there are stay-at-home moms that are going, what do I do? I'm out of the game. You're not. You're not out of the game. The Lord has entrusted you with eternal souls to shepherd. That is a high calling. There are people that are retired and they're like, what do I do now? I'm, I'm out of the game. You're not out of the game. On Tuesday nights, we get on prayer calls with a lot of people that are retired and man, they just pour out prayer and wisdom and they are faithful to come alongside us in that season you should think about the end of your life in this way right like the holy spirit is sanctifying us is he not he's sanctifying us and so we don't hit this age of 65 and go well i kind of peaked and now i'm going to coast into eternity if i'm being sanctified then every day i'm being conformed into the image of god and if i'm being conformed into the image of god then i'm actually crescendoing into eternity I am on the incline all the way until the day I die. So regardless of your age, you have invaluable wisdom and insight to share with the body. And you should be expressing that spiritual gift in the church. You should always be on mission. Your circumstances do not change your calling. Next he moves on to verse 2. He says, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And so what makes up the character of this unity? Humility, gentleness, and patience. The world's definition of humility and the Bible's definition of humility are different. All right? The world tells us that to be humble, that we need to, we need to diminish ourselves, and we need to be small and be like, oh, you know, I'm not really that good or I'm not really that gifted and, you know, I don't really have anything to offer. And, and it's about lowering yourself. That's not biblical humility. Biblical humility doesn't diminish the gifts and the authority that God has given you in life. God has gifted you, some of you, exceptionally well. And some of you, he's given high positions of authority. Right? You don't go, oh, well, you know, it's not really that important. No, it is important. God has given you that to steward well for the body of Christ. And so we don't diminish it as the world defines. What humility is biblically is position in perspective. Position in perspective. What it is, is God has given me a position of influence or authority. But regardless of what it is, I realize that the gifts he's given me aren't for me. It's to serve the body of Christ. And regardless of how high I ever make it, it is nothing in comparison to Jesus Christ. So I will keep myself in perspective. If you want to know how abuse happens in the church, it's when we we lose humility and we lose perspective of position. The SBC scandal is all over the news right now. Why is that a result? It's because some men that God put in leadership lost perspective of their position. And instead of realizing that God had given them people to care for and love and steward, and that position of authority was to be administered in humility, instead they used it as an opportunity for abuse. So if we don't keep our position in perspective, then we're going to be prone to abusing the people that God has entrusted to us instead of really caring for those people. So if humility is position in perspective, then gentleness is people in perspective. Gentleness is understanding the people that God has entrusted to us. 
as Christians, we have a mutual responsibility to one another. Regardless of our differences, regardless of how we look or feel about one another, we have a mutual responsibility. I look, I look at my children, right? I've got five kids. Right now my wife is at home with five kids. Please pray for her, trying to get five kids out the door for church. But I look at my, my children and I go, God, you've entrusted us with five eternal souls. That is an incredible weight. And you've given me a position of authority and influence over them. And so if I keep my role as a parent in perspective, then I realize that I don't use this as an opportunity to abuse my children, but instead it encourages me to walk in gentleness with them. Because I'm stewarding eternal souls that are going to have children of their own, and there's going to be a legacy that continues. So what I do now matters. It matters a lot. And so because I keep my position as a parent in perspective, it leads me to walk in gentleness with my children. It's the same thing in the church. Regardless of how you serve here, whatever position the Lord has given you, you understand that whoever is beneath you has been entrusted to you, and it's a high calling, and it should lead you in humility to serve those people gently. You ever want to see gentleness disappear? Put, put your kids in charge of the other kids for like 15 minutes. That's all it takes. All right? I've, I've got five kids, and there's a lot of times we go, hey, I've got to step outside. I've got to do this. You're in charge. And you leave, and you come back, and it is just out of control, right? I, I'm, I'm convinced the minute you walk out the door, they turn to the other ones, and they go, look at me. I'm the captain now. I'm, they'll get this Somali accent. It'll be really weird. <laughs> captain Phillips, first service didn't get that joke. A few more of you guys got it this time. I, I appreciate that. But it's because children don't have the ability to keep that position in perspective. Because all they've seen from the world is whenever you're given authority, you abuse that authority. Whenever you have a position over somebody else, you use that to leverage them. And so they're just going off the model of a sinful world. And so as families and as churches, we have to constantly demonstrate what humility and gentleness looks like. And so when they become moms and dads and leaders in their communities, they know how to walk in humility and gentleness with the people that they come alongside and they love. Next he says, with patience. All right, so if humility is our position and perspective, if gentleness is people and perspective, then our patience is hope and perspective. We keep our hope in perspective. How many of us have gone through seasons of patience where we're just like, God, why aren't you moving right now? I feel stuck. Amen, right? Like, I feel stuck in this season. How long am I going to have to sit here before you move? We can't stay here forever. Something has to change. I have to get off this hamster wheel. But if we understand good theology, what Paul talks about in the first three chapters of Ephesians, and we start to walk in that in practice, I understand if I have good vision of God, he doesn't remain idle. We don't serve an idle God. He's constantly doing. He's constantly moving. And so he's moving even if I can't see where that's going to lead. In those seasons where we are being tried in patience, those are actually probably the seasons of the most sanctification. Most of you guys can look back to that season and go, yeah, God really stretched me. And God really grew me. And God really taught me something new about himself. 
And not only that, the things that he taught me equipped me for the next season of ministry. It made me fruitful in that. And so right now you may be discouraged about where God has you. You may not have clear vision about where you're going next. But know that God's sanctifying you in this season right now. And he's giving you the tools you need to be effective in ministry in the next season. If you try to circumnavigate that, you try to bypass it, you try to go past God, you're going to end up on your face and you're going to end up discouraged. And then you're going to look back and go, God, why'd you let me do that? Because you were impatient. It's like a kid riding a bicycle, right? Like you're walking behind them, keeping them upright, and they're like, I can do it, I can do it, let go, let go. You let go, and he falls on his face. It's like, why'd you let go? You told me to let go. I have a lot of kids, all right? So God is sanctifying us in this season to make us fruitful in the next. So even though it's hard, even though it's difficult, man, in humility, ask the Lord, what, what would you teach me right now? What is the lesson that I need to learn in order that I can be effective in the next? Then he goes on to say, bearing with one another in love. All right, so if you guys allow me, I'm going to geek out for just a second. I'm going to talk about the Greek word that's there. All right, that's not the kind of guy I am, I promise. In the Greek, that's, that's not my style. What I want us to do is I want us to see this word means so much more. Because when I initially read it and I go bearing with one another in love, it's like, okay, like just put up with people, right? That's what bearing means, just bear it. Bite down hard, just go along with it. The, the Greek word actually, it means to forbear. Forbear. If you look up the defini- definition of forbear, it means to hold yourself back with great effort. Hold yourself back with great effort. Think about your life. How, would, how different would your relationships look if you were able to walk alongside people and hold yourself back with great effort? Because what it means is it means to, to give up your right to be right. It means I'm giving up my rights in order to maintain a relationship. I'm giving up my opinions to make room for somebody else. You're creating space, right? I'm holding myself back in great effort to allow room for relationship to grow. Man, we may not have the same vision. We might not have the same opinions on a matter. We may outright disagree. But if it doesn't affect the foundation of the gospel, Paul's counsel is forbear in love. Hold yourself back. Create some space for a relationship to grow. In our house, we have this saying. We, we, we tell our kids all the time, do you want to be right or do you want to be reconciled? Because you can't have both. It's your choice. You can either choose to be right in this moment or you can choose to be reconciled in a relationship. What do you desire? What do you desire most? Do you desire most to be right and be justified? Or do you have the gentleness and humility Impatience to go, you know what? I'm going to forbear in love and I'm going to make room because this relationship is more important to me than it is to be right. There would be a whole lot less people spending a whole lot of money in marriage counseling if we could just get that principle. The relationship comes before your need to be right. I've got two teenagers in the house right now forbearing love not easy (laughs) not easy at all because they're also very opinionated and they love to tell you how opinionated they are 
and they will just go and they will go. And as parents, like, well, you just want to fix it, right? I just want to fix it. I want to stop it. Grades are bad? Fix it. Disunity in the home? Fix it. Bad attitude? Fix it. Disrespectful? I'm going to crush it, then I'm going to crush you. All right? Amen. <laughs> I got one of those in the first service, too. Yeah. But that's not Paul's counsel to us. Even with our children, keep my position in perspective. I walk in gentleness. I forbear in love because the relationship is more important than my need to feel right or justified or even respected because I want to walk gently with them. doesn't mean I spare the rod, but I'm not abusive either. In the church, it's the same calling to walk with one another in mutual responsibility with humility and gentleness and patience forbearing in love next we move on to believers choose to be unified verse 3 Paul says be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace what he says is differences in the church are inevitable differences are inevitable but division is a choice Our differences are inevitable, but our division is a choice. You can choose to be united, or you can choose to be divided. I I saw guys, some guys I served with in Afghanistan, they got in a fist fight over a hot pocket. A hot pocket, guys. I've never once eaten a hot pocket and gone, hmm, that was a good choice. (laughs) Never, ever, all right? If you eat a hot pocket, you either need to be on your way to a college dorm or a NASCAR race, and that's it. That's the only appropriate time. My wife is like, you can't make that joke. And I was like, we live in a trailer in Alabama. I can make that joke, all right? We've done the Hot Pocket life before. But those same guys that that got in a fist fight over something as ridiculous as a Hot Pocket, a few days later, we were out on a a mission. We were exfilling, and we had like an 800-yard terrorist wheat field. And it's just like, it's a grind, man. Like, you're going uphill, and you have absolutely no cover. So, of course, when we get in that wheat field, we get, we get ambushed. And so we're trying to break contact and get out of there. And those same two guys are next to each other, bounding, trying to get off of that, get off of that X to get out of that gunfight. And one of them goes down, and he has a malfunction. And he yells out, he's like, malfunction, which means his weapon's jammed. It can't fire. He can't do anything with it. And the guy that he had gotten in a fight with over a a hot pocket steps in front of him between him and the gunfire and says, covering. He was willing to put himself in the line of fire for the sake of another. And why would he do that? It's because they were united by something bigger. They had a shared purpose and they had a shared vision. And it was the shared goal that everyone comes home. Regardless of what happens, everyone comes home. And they were united by that vision. When a church is focused on our calling and purpose, we share value because we share vision. Schindler Drive is not united just because it's Schindler Drive. If the, the way you think about one another is, oh, we're united because we go to church together, that's not big enough. 
You can't maintain that. It is too vague of a goal. You have to have a shared vision and a shared purpose. Because unity is a byproduct of vision. So what's the purpose of Schindler Drive? All right, it's actually a trick question because I had nine hours driving down here. And I was like, man, I'm going to listen to a Schindler Drive sermon or two on the way down. And so I listened to Jonathan preach. And Jonathan preached on this very subject. So I have in my notes in front of me the vision of Schindler Drive. So if you don't know it, shame on you. The purpose of Schindler Drive. Strategy, right? This is your vision strategy. Gathering, connecting, serving, and engaging. Gathering, connecting, serving, and engaging. That's your vision. That's what keeps you guys alive. It's what keeps you united. It's what keeps you connected. That you gather together as a diverse body of Christ. Bearing with one another. Connecting with one another. And connecting with others in the community. Building relationships. Serving the body and serving the community. To see the kingdom advance. And engage a lost and dying world. Listen. I think now might be the most exciting time to be a Christian. Because we are dealing with political instability, racial instability, economic instability. And there are going to be people all over this country that are going to be brought to their wit's end. And they're going to be brought to the end of themselves. And they're not going to have answers. And they're going to come looking for the only thing that can satisfy. And the only thing that can satisfy is the undying truths of the gospel. But all of that means nothing if they show up to a church that looks as fractured and broken as the world. We have to be unified. We have to give the world a hope bigger than they can find on the outside. And we have no reason not to because Christ has shown is given to us supernaturally. It's not done in our own strength. It's done by the Spirit and on the foundation of the gospel. When the church takes its eye off the ball, disunity is close behind. When you take your eye off the ball, disunity is right around the corner. If you guys allow me, I want to turn over to Acts 6 real quick, just as an example. Acts chapter 6 is starting in verse 1. It says, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So what's happening? It says that disciples were increasing in number. The gospel's going forward. But now some people in the church have started to show partiality. They started to decide who they want to serve and who they don't want to serve. And so now there's division in the body. So what happens next? It says, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom who will appoint to this duty but we'll devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word and what they said pleased the whole gathering and they chose Stephen a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit and Philip and Procurus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas a proselyte of Antioch these they set before the apostles and they prayed and they laid their hands on them and the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem 
and a great many of priests became obedient to the faith. So what happened? The gospel was going, it was advancing, disciples were being made, and then disunity happened in the body of Christ. People started to show partiality, and the gospel comes to a screeching halt. And nothing happens until the disunity in the body is reconciled. And then once that's addressed, and it's taken care of, it says, and the gospel advanced, and disciples were being made. Disunity destroys gospel momentum. It destroys gospel momentum. If the church takes its eye off the ball and isn't unified in its vision and its mission, then you'll be destroyed internally by disunity. Man, it's not that the things that we desire for our church are too big. It's that we settle for things that are way too small. We'll settle for what happens inside these walls and on this stage one day a week rather than the vision and the purpose of being a light in a dark, lost, and dying world. Our aspirations are just too small. In our last three verses, Paul is going to say that the unchanging truth of Scripture is the perfect foundation that we're supposed to build our unity on. We are unified by our conviction. What he's about to lay out are basically the seven non-negotiables of church unity. We should be unified as the church, big C church, right? Lots of denominations, lots of different beliefs. As long as we hold to these seven non-negotiables, there's no reason we shouldn't be unified. You may have different emphases on spiritual gifts and gender roles and all these other things, but if it's not within these seven, Paul says it's not good enough to cause disunity. It may mean that you don't fellowship in the same way. It may mean that we don't do church gatherings the same way. But it doesn't mean that we're not unified in vision and mission outside these walls together. I heard one pastor say, if you've got more in common with an atheist from the same political party as you, as you do a Christian from the opposite party, your perspectives are probably out of line. If you can find more in common with an unbeliever who votes the way you do, than you can with somebody who follows Jesus, who has some different opinions, then we probably need to get our perspectives back in order. So why is this gospel truth the foundation that we have to build on? It's because we live in a world that's constantly trying to convince us to dole down the gospel. Its definition of unity is just compromise, appease, we'll all get along. But we've already proven that unity is a byproduct of vision, so if we don't share the same vision, we'll never be unified. It's a lie. The reality is is that Satan knows that he can't defeat the Christian. He can't win a battle over the body of Christ. And so the next best thing is to try to get you to dull the sword that we fight with, which is the word of God. Right? If scripture is sharper than two-edged sword, division of spirit and soul cuts to bone and marrow, I don't know about you, but I want my surgeon using a scalpel and not a butter knife. We don't dull the word that we fight with for a definition of unity that is completely illogical. 
we have to stick to the foundations of truth and the foundations of Scripture. The flip side of that coin is that we can't elevate secondary issues to the level of doctrine. I can't put my opinions on the same level as biblical truth. Like I said, you may feel strongly about spiritual gifts or gender roles in the church and who's allowed to minister and who's not. But Paul's counsel is this, major on the majors and minor on the minors. Forbearing with one another in love. Make room for unity in the body. That has to be done by a work of the Holy Spirit. We don't do that naturally. We can't do that naturally. The Holy Spirit has to lead in every conversation and every decision we make. And I believe God designed it that way because he always creates things in a way that keeps us dependent on him. In a church that learns to function out of systems and programs instead of utter dependence on the leading of the Holy Spirit and the power of Christ in their life, it's doomed to stop looking outward and just become so inward focused it becomes ineffective. It has to be found and built on the foundation of the gospel. What happens is when scripture's silent, we like to start inserting our opinions. When scripture's silent on a subject, we go, I have a thought on that. What's more likely is that we serve a God who's so magnificent, who's so majestic, who's so great, that not a single language or church or musical style or any of that can fully glorify him. And so he's silent to create space so that every nation, tribe, language can glorify him in the fullest way possible. Man, that is... That is one of the most beautiful things that I get to experience. When I go over to places like Togo and I see people worshiping God in a language that I don't understand or a foreign language that I do understand. Or I go to a conference in Denver and I sit behind the deaf section and I see them in a language of their own worshiping God. One language is not enough to just encapsulate the magnitude and the glory of God. It takes a global church to glorify him the way he deserves. And we need the vision and the perspective of those who look different than us and think different than us. As much as the church in Togo needs you and your support, you need their perspective as well. Because they have an insight and a word for you also. I want you to think about this. What created the need for Paul to write this it was a church on mission if the church wasn't on mission if it wasn't going and grafting in Gentiles that look completely different from them there would be no need for Paul to write and tell them to be unified a church that's on mission is the very thing that causes this letter to be written because Gentiles who are very different are being grafted in the body and the big question is man can they pull this off and Paul's saying this is how we're going to do it We're going to do it on a foundation of the gospel. So then he begins to break this down, starting in verse 4. There's only one body. It's not a church. It's not a denomination. It's the big C church. Not a church movement, but a Christian movement from every language, every nation, and every tribe. 
There is one Holy Spirit. Guys, if you're here today and you've never heard the gospel, listen to what Paul says here. It is one of the clearest presentations of the gospel. There's one Holy Spirit. Jesus said, it's better that I'll leave you so that another can come. And when he said another, he meant another of the same kind. Is that the way we view the Holy Spirit? If I had Jesus standing right next to me and he says, hey, it's actually better that I'll leave you so that something better can come. The Holy Spirit can be here. Is that your view of the Holy Spirit? Do we take Jesus at his word? Because the Holy Spirit is the power in our life. He's the one who changes the desires and sanctifies us and conforms us into the image of God. So the Holy Spirit, as he conforms us into the image of Jesus, he empowers our lives for Christian living and Christian ministry. And so if we deny the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we deny the power of life transformation and the power of ministry in the body. He says there's one hope. What is our hope? Our hope's in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That one day he's going to return and his church is going to be vindicated. All injustices will be made right. That he will restore us. That he will redeem us. And it's in the hope of eternal life that we lean in in difficult situations. It says there's one Lord Jesus Christ. One Lord, not two. Jesus said nobody comes to the Father except through me. You cannot be reconciled to God apart from Jesus Christ. Amen. You can't. If you wonder why relationships in your life are fractured and broken, it's because you can't have the horizontal without the vertical first. The vertical has to precede the horizontal. You cannot be reconciled to other people that are as broken as you unless you've been reconciled to God. It says we're united in one faith, which means there's only one gospel. Ephesians 2, 4 through 8 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Your faith must be in the work of Jesus Christ alone because the only thing you have to bring to the table is your sin. You have nothing else to offer. There's one baptism, a public profession that even though the world says you're insane and you're bigots and you're intolerant and you're ignorant, I'll follow Jesus because my hope is built on the truth and I will not bow down to lies. There's one God and Father, over all, through all, and in all. Our Father is sovereign. Do we believe that whatever we walked in here with this morning, God knows it, he sees it, he cares about it. He knows it, he sees it, he cares about it. And not only that, he has the power to redeem it. There are people that just need to know that. They just need to know that Jesus Christ has the power to redeem them. I've had the the privilege of sharing the gospel with everyone from drug addicts to war heroes, right? And this is the simplest way that I know how to explain life transformation. It's the realization that your God doesn't have the goods and it's a transfer of trust to the only one who can. A realization that whatever God you put your hope in, he doesn't have the goods to provide for you and you transfer your trust from it to the only God who can. A lot of people have built their foundation of trust 
on the God of careers or substances or relationships, and they keep finding themselves empty because there's only one God and Father who can satisfy. The gospel is the foundation for unity in the church, but most importantly, it's the foundation for the mission of the church. It's what we build our life on. As I wrap this up this morning, guys, uh, I just want to say, if there's anyone here this morning that needs prayer, you believe that God sees it, he knows it, he cares about it, let me encourage you, allow the body to pray for you. Right? By keeping those things to yourself, you're, you're denying other people in your body of believers to share their spiritual giftings and come alongside you in that season. You weren't created to do it alone. God has given you all the people around you in this moment to come alongside you and lift you up. So if you need prayer this morning, I encourage you, come down. Allow the body to do what it was created to do and pray for you. Also, if you're here this morning and you've never heard the gospel before and this is your first time, or maybe you've heard the gospel before and this is just the first time it made sense. Scripture says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. If you believe that this morning, if you know that in your heart, and I, I encourage you just to take one more step, demonstrate it. Come down front. Allow someone to pray with you. Get you connected to a body. Get you connected to people that are going to love you and walk alongside you in that season because you need them and they need you. All right? Let me pray for us.